Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Hidden Noise, the final episode of what has been a beautifully rocky and extraordinary ride. I am Abby Sandler. And I'm Rebecca Siegel. And the first thing that we should do on today's episode is give Abby all of the credit for producing and editing every single one of season one's episodes. So thank you, Abby. And big thank you to Josh, our amazing sound engineer, who is really the reason why this podcast (laughs) exists. So thanks, Josh. Um, And on on another note, we are really sorry for doing this, but we've somehow managed to find the most depressing show ever to close out the season. However, it's important, so we think you should still see it. It's true. We're not doing anyone any favors by covering this show, except maybe the Neue Gallery. Yes, that's right. This week's Go See is Before the Fall, German and Austrian Art of the 1930s at the Neue Gallery. And it will shake you to your core. And since we feel pretty bad about this, we have two (laughs) wonderful guests who will join us for the Even Eight. Daniel Palmer, Associate Curator at Public Art Fund, and Zsa Zsa Fay from the Jewish Museum. But first, Noya. This shows a lot, guys. We said it once, but we're going to say it again. It's like watching Doomsday creep in in slow motion. The premise of the exhibition is work from the 1930s. So you know where this show is going, and you know it is not pretty. The show starts on the second floor, and it's organized by medium and or genre. You begin by walking through one of the permanent collection galleries filled with beautiful floral portraits of Adele Block Bauer and proceed through a black curtain, naturally, into a gallery filled with paintings of a very different tone. That said, all still lifes. But these aren't your average friendly Dutch still lifes. They're not even your average friendly Dutch still lifes with skulls. <laughs> these are damaged and demented dolls, some of which just look like corpses. There are broken masks, foreshortened limbs, and flowers that are far from connoting youth in bloom. They are chilling, and they set the tone for the rest of the show. That said, the Germans and Austrians, they knew how to use color. Don't just look at the objects depicted in these paintings. I mean, you will because you can't not, and they're insane. But look at the paint. Those deep greens and dark reds, Yeah, they are absolutely one of the highlights because after you've left this first gallery feeling not a little disturbed, you're going to go upstairs where it gets much worse. There are photographs, collages, portraits, street scenes, and landscapes, and the rise of the Third Reich. The mood and tone have already been set, but somehow as you walk through the portrait gallery and then encounter scenes from everyday life... It just keeps getting darker and darker and darker. When we were trying to figure out how to appropriately talk about this show without just simply breaking it up into dark, depressing, more depressing, and terrifying. Which we might still be doing. So we're going to draw your attention to a few specific works and artists that we think you should keep your eyes peeled for. The first two are by Rudolf Dischinger. You'll encounter his work in the second half of the show. And when you do, stop and really figure out what's going on in these images. There are two paintings in particular located in one of the latter galleries, I believe. One marginally subtler than the other, the first being Suburban Street and the other being Threat. These images almost look like stills from some twisted animated surrealist short film about Nazi Germany. That was at least my take. (laughs) There is something cinematic, but also cartoonish about these street scenes. You see these squat little characters kind of going about their day, sitting on the curb, reaching out their windows, children standing idly in the street. And then there is just this massive figure looming in the center of the scene. He looks like a police officer or some state official. He's completely unmarked, though, so it's slightly ambiguous. Either way, it is very clear that something is definitely not right here. And this was the friendlier one. The other one that we found 
deeply problematic was threat from 1935. This is the surrealist nightmare you just woke up from. A faceless doll sits reclining in the corner of a room looking toward the window. Outside that very large window, there's a giant masked figure in metal armor looking in. None of his features are visible, making him seem closer to a robot than a human, but he's about the same size as the building, larger than life, and watching everything. And we usually don't spend time talking about specific works because we understand we have the visual and you don't. But we feel the need to do this this time because you you need to remember to stop and look at these. Like, they are absolutely chilling. And absolutely mandatory to see what is actually happening in these scenes. Part of the interest in this exhibition and putting on these types of shows is to acknowledge that certain artists saw things coming and saw a shift in tone and mood reflected sociopolitically in their artworks. And it's important to pay attention to the characters who brought that to life. This show, like many others we've covered, though, is small. (laughs) In this context, we're pretty grateful. You'll have all of the feelings in only a handful of small rooms. And there is an upside to all of this, magically. After you're done with doom and gloom, you get to go back downstairs to Cafe Sabarsky and the museum gift shop, both of which are two of maybe my favorite places ever. (laughs) This is an institution worth supporting. It should be noted that it is funded by rather prominent Jews naturally. So part of the other thing to keep in mind with this exhibition is that the German and Austrian art from the 1930s picked for these shows may not be necessarily telling you the entire story. This is a story rooted with a logical conclusion and there is an element to which that has to be remembered as you go through the show. And on that note, we'll turn to the institution a marginally further uptown, the Jewish Museum, to welcome Zsa Fay. Thanks, Jaja, for joining us. Jaja is the Director of Digital for the Jewish Museum, and we're very excited to have her here today. Thank you for inviting me. So can you tell us a little bit about the Jewish Museum and where it fits in the constellation of museums in New York City? Yeah, of course. So the Jewish Museum is on 92nd and 5th Avenue. I think when many people think of just the name, the Jewish Museum, it may not be an institution that's for them. So um, I think something to know is that it's first and foremost an art museum, and it's always been an art museum. And it's one of the most interesting institutions, I think, in terms of looking at art through the lens of a particular identity. And although I'm not Jewish, it's not an institution that's purely for people of a Jewish background. Um, It's a museum for people who really are curious about art and Jewish culture. So you really get both when you visit the museum. And if you've been to the museum recently, you'll notice that we reinstalled our collection. So you'll see a juxtaposition of both contemporary art, design, photography, painting with Jewish ceremonial objects. So I think for people who haven't been to the museum before, you know, once you make that first step to discover that it's a way of just discovering a new culture and perhaps artists that you've known already, like Mujigliani, who you've covered on your show before, we often get the question and, oh, I didn't know that person was Jewish. Um, It really ends up outing artists in a way, which I think is really interesting and accessible for people to really discover art through a very different lens. And as your role of director of digital, what is your mission for the museum? So uh, I oversee pretty much every digital platform um, at the museum. And I think if you think about institutions and just experiencing art today, pretty much every 
um, initial experience that you have with art right now is through some type of digital interface. So you discover art through the web or on social media, and it's up to us to really open up that access to really translate what's happening at the institution and make that available for a broader public. And is that a mission that is well received? I know that the Jewish Museum, in addition to having sort of an identity focus, is also an institution which has a broad audience and one which has served a I think most in most people's minds a sort of older Jewish population in many ways so I have to imagine that a move toward digital is one which part of the museum embraces and perhaps another part of the museum is a little bit more conservative about. So I wouldn't say that technology is replacing all of our existing ways of uh, communicating with our constituents. So we have, you know, what's our core Jewish museum audience. And I think as institutions evolve, you know, even older audiences are very fluent now in technology. I think we're trying to, you know, do our best to make what we do available for all possible audiences, um, depending on their preference. So we continue to do um, this, you know, audio tours and print ads and all of our existing communications. But the digital landscape really adds a new dimension and potentially a new audience for the museum. And tell us a little bit about the summer programming. What's coming up at the Jewish Museum that should be on everyone's radar? This spring, summer, we have what I'm just going to describe as heavy in hell at the Jewish Museum. So um, up right now is a really refreshing, colorful survey of Mark Camille Shamovitz. Um, so he's a London-based artist who is not very well known in New York. Um, he had a big show at the Serpentine a couple of years ago um, in London, and his work really goes between contemporary art and design and is incredibly refreshing when you step into the galleries. And downstairs opening in May, we have an exhibition called Heim Sutin Flesh. So that's going to be the hell part. <laughs> so they're very intense paintings of, you know, beef carcasses and chickens and, you know, kind of a very dark dimension of visual culture. But it'll be a very interesting juxtaposition for the spring. As opposed to the sort of bright and airy pastels that are on the... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we'll get started on the even eight. The first question we have to ask is, what is the most underrated show, whether it's an exhibition or performance or an installation that's happening in New York right now? So this is an exhibition that I haven't seen yet because it just opened in New York. um, And I just got back from Brazil where everyone had been asking me, have you seen the show? Um, It's called Radical Women um, Mm. in the exhibition that came from The Hammer. It's up now at the Brooklyn Museum and really presents women artists of Latin America and giving them this whole new context within an institution. So, you know, many artists that I engaged with when I was down in Sao Paulo, um, you know, seeing their work in galleries, Liliana Porner, Ana Mandieta, Marta Minuhin, seeing them, you know, in New York for the first time really presents them in this new perspective and bringing the work of women artists back to the forefront. And what is the most overrated show. So I think something that's happening not only in New York, but um, on a worldwide scale, I'm going to blame social media for this, is this concept of food museums. So have you guys heard of, you know, these so-called museums of ice cream and candy? And it is... You're making my like year right now all I've wanted to do on this podcast is talk about the ice cream Is like hate on these places. So A, they're not museums. They're not museums. (laughs) And to me, it's really fascinating. It's like an episode of Black Mirror where you have, um, you know, these, these, you know, to be honest, like brand engagements, they purely exist for the Instagram, the selfie. Yeah, the production of Instagram assets. And I think it's really fascinating that they've leveraged, you know, 
the phenomenon of, oh, these artists who, um, you know, who have been practicing for decades, like Yayo Kusama, mm-hmm. James Terrell, this kind of phenomenon of art that translates really well on, you know, the two-dimensional social media platform, purely replicating, you know, aesthetics for the purpose yeah. of brand engagement to me is incredibly problematic. They and also leverage the term museum. Yes, exactly. Which yeah. is another problem yeah, that nobody also- seems to acknowledge, that that word actually meant something beyond site people visit to take pictures. To take the selfie, exactly. Um, yeah, and I think... You know, it's really a challenge for museums to coexist with these places because, you know, we are first and foremost an institution of education. And Mm -hmm. I think the Internet has really problematized the distribution of images because you see things without context. You see things purely based on how, you know, your friends have engaged with that content. So I think, you know, we're seeing this play out a number of very problematic ways on Facebook, on um, the way in which all of these platforms mine your data and serve you content and follow you around the internet. Um, I think there's a lack of consciousness in how these platforms that we use are supposedly free, but yet, you know, deliver a very skewed interpretation of truth and knowledge. They're also absolutely changing people's behaviors in spaces. And there's a learned enactment of behavior in museums now that doesn't actually reflect differences in institutions and those institutions' roles. I mean, to your point that these spaces were originally and today remain places of education, it's very hard to impart that when one is accustomed to walking into spaces with the same title where the only engagement is with your phone and how those two things are completely different despite the fact that you're both in museums, quote unquote which I think is also probably making your life much harder. Yeah, I mean, I think the mission of any museum right now is to subvert that behavior in a way. So, you know, I'm I'm not opposed to, you know, people taking selfies. I'm not opposed to, you know, the, the concept of engaging through digital devices, but there should certainly be more. Um, and I think for people working in that space within institutions, we are charged to deliver that context and accessibility so that people have that curiosity to engage deeper. You know, the, the issue with the these other places is that it really just stops, you know, with the image and we risk social media changing the trajectory of how people consume all images. It's it's kind of this fight for institutions trying to do something more meaningful to get their information out there. What do you think is the most exciting recent development in New York's cultural landscape? So we're just coming out of Women's History Month, and one of the most exciting initiatives that we did at the Jewish Museum last month was we hosted our first Wikipedia Edit-a-thon. And of course, um, you know, this is an initiative that's been going on for several years with art and feminism. And I think this also is exciting just in the context of, you know, how information is being shared right now, this concept of ownership of information is incredibly important within the you know digital landscape and how information is being authored how who has the ability to author that information so the premise of these editathons is the fact that less than 10% of wikipedia editors these days are women 
and you know the people in charge of really the world's biggest database of knowledge right now are skewing the the trajectory of how that information is presented so you know we spent an afternoon training people on how to edit their own articles, um, really trying to elevate the work of women artists in our collection and, you know, empowering those people to do it on their own. So I think it's really exciting that institutions are, you know, being that go-between to help people take ownership of knowledge and, you know, really make an impact on a global scale. So aside from thousands of Wikipedia pages, <laughs> what is the most important sort of book or you've read or film you've watched recently? Along the lines of this dystopian, you know, world of technology that we're living in right now, two films that people have been really badgering me to see that I watched recently. One is The Square. I know you guys talked about that on your podcast, this like really way too real dark satirical film about the art world and then um, this other film in the realm of social media called Ingrid Goes West oh my god to me it's a horror film both are horror I watched it like when I had the flu you know was already had been in bed sweating out my fever for 48 hours I I was scared I was terrified yeah (laughs) and and I think really messes you up yes and I think unlike unlike you know Black Mirror and these um, kind of fictional portraits of the future. This is very much about the present and it's like a terrifying present. And it's um, like not fiction. No. Or, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a total nightmare. So it's this black comedy about a girl that tries to befriend her in- Instagram obsession. So I'm sure this is probably based on real life. Undoubtedly. And. <laughs> It's just way too real. What did you think of The Square? It was really uncomfortable to watch, and I think that was the purpose. And of course, I think everyone who is in the art world has this very complicated relationship of self-identifying with everything that happened in that film. So I think it was probably one of the most successful portrayals of the art world in cinema. That's very rarely do you... I I haven't seen any portrayal, let alone like satire, of the art world done that successfully. And I was like, touche, you really hit the nail on the head this time. Yeah. And then once you see your world in film, you're just embarrassed. (laughs) Yeah. You want to particularly the night where they all get together and they're drunk and they're sort of walking through these magical spaces, sort of partying with no sort of disregard of the sort of amazing art that is on the wall. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I've been to that party. (laughs) I think we've all been to that party a few times. One big performance. Mm hmm. If you could be an expert on any subject besides all digital platforms and the internet, what would it be? I would say astrology readings. So I very deliberately plan my entire digital strategy around whether or not Mercury is in retrograde. I oh believe God. it to a science. <laughs> um, and as the child of scientists, I obviously didn't go that route and became, you know, that's amazing. The, the the daughter who decided to study art. Um, I needed to pick a fake science, so the daughter who went <laughs> astrology instead of astronomy. But yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Um, you know, I think there there's definitely some truth to this kind of fake science. Where do you go to be alone in New York? So my go-to places, every time I, I'm in Soho, I almost forget that they're there. The um, Ultra de Maria Earth Room and mm-hmm. Broken Kilometer. So I've been so many times, but every time I pass by, you know, it's just a very familiar space 
that is completely empty. No one knows it's there. It's in the middle of the city. And it's like visiting your old friend. And where do you take someone you're trying to impress? As you know, the Jewish Museum is very far uptown. It's really hard to get people to come visit me. So you're like, um, I'll take you to Russ like, and Daughters. <laughs> exactly. So it's like going up to the suburbs. Um, but yeah, I think ever since Russ and Daughters opened at the museum, it's been really life-changing for everyone who visits the museum, who works there. Um, I'm there every day. But it's a really just great space to meet up with friends and have meetings. So and Bobka. It's my... Exactly. (laughs) Um, It's my way of getting people to come up and visit me. And the last question we have to ask is, what is on your radar for the rest of the year that should be on all of our listeners' radars, aside from Radical Women at the Brooklyn Museum and Soutine's Hell at the Jewish Museum? (laughs) So we haven't announced our fall schedule yet, but um, it'll be really great. And... Um, kind of further down Museum Mile. Um, I think it's opening in a couple weeks at the Guggenheim. Um, It's part of their Chinese art initiative. So the show is called One Hand Clapping. So it's another group show from their Robert H. Ho Chinese art initiative with a couple pretty well-known Chinese artists like Kao Fei and Samson Young um, and a couple that not many have heard of. And then broader across the U.S., um, I'm really looking forward to the next Carnegie International. It's been a long time. So um, I had a great experience last time just discovering new artists and just seeing, you know, kind of staying within America um, and seeing what's out there. For our listeners who don't know, the Carnegie International will open in September, and the artist list was just announced. So it is a very exciting time for people to start getting their plans set for visiting Pittsburgh. Thank you, Zsa for joining us. Thank you for having me. And on that note, we'll turn to a different kind of story, one more public and rooted in New York City. Yes, let's introduce Dan Palmer from the Public Art Fund. Dan is the Associate Curator of the Public Art Fund and here to tell us a little bit more about the mission of the organization. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Abby. Really happy to be here. So Public Art Fund is a nonprofit arts organization that creates public art throughout all of the five boroughs. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary and we're really always lucky to get to serve as a platform for artists to create some of their most ambitious projects and to really help make sure that there's an opportunity for and a, and a space for art in in throughout New York City. Most recently, you guys were responsible for the Ai Weiwei presentation, which very much dominated New York City's spaces all over from Queens to Washington Square Park. And working with an artist like that, whose exposure level is so intense to begin with, must have been an incredible experience. Yeah, it was really uh, special to, like I said, sort of work with an artist, um, as we always do, of an international caliber. These are really some of the most important artists throughout the world today who otherwise would be doing really major museum shows. And, you know, I get to sort of feel a little bit like a Robin Hood of sorts uh, (laughs) to take that uh, and to bring that to the public where, you know, everyone can have access to this work. There's absolutely no admissions fees ever or anything like that. And um, to help not only to just do that, but to, to work with these artists to create some of their most ambitious and really compelling projects. And large scale. Absolutely. I mean, that's one thing that um, is really also very interesting and different uh, in terms of my curatorial role is we're not just talking about taking works that were created in a studio and bringing them into you know a white box gallery, but 
really working with the city, working with really some of the absolute top-notch fabricators, doing all the permitting, all these sort of really challenging uh, things that for you know other arts organizations really mean they can't even get to square one because it's it's really quite difficult and to help artists really harness all, all of this uh, to uh, to basically dream and to have the sky be their the limit for them in that regard right big dreams and also big logistics always <laughs> <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now yeah so um we just announced our summer season and i'm really excited about it because i have two shows that are like have been projects I've been working on for quite some time. So the first is um, with the Austrian artist Erwin Worm, and it's going to be a piece at Brooklyn Bridge Park called Hot Dog Bus. Uh, this is a overstuffed Volkswagen uh, microbus. So he took a vintage uh, a vintage bus and sort of made it into one of his iconic quote unquote fat buses, where he's added all of this extra sort of heft to it and it'll be it'll be serving hot dogs to the public because this is so much an integral part of Irwin's practice not just the transformation of everyday objects to make them strange to sort of call attention to mass and how things have have shifted or you know grown uh, in culture let's say writ large to show the connection between culture and consumerism um, but then also to think about how the addition of mass into our own bodies or sort of changing our positions or you know putting ourselves in juxtapositions with with different and new things as has always been a part of his one minute sculptures um, that this is really kind of a combination of a lot of different strands of thinking in the artist's practice um, it'll be also really fun and accessible you can imagine to that that park's uh, very diverse public yeah and a public which is uh, not always the first one to receive public art spaces. It's not really where so many of these projects go down necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's felt really, um, really great uh, to be a part of a team at Public Art Fund that is really thinking it's important to create public art, not just for the center of the city, let's say. You know, we always create art at the entrance to Central Park, the southeast entrentrance mm-hmm. to Central Park at 60th and 5th Ave, Doris Fr- C. Friedman Plaza, which is like such a jewel site. But then also beyond that, to think about, you know, for, for the Ai Weiwei project and for another exhibition I did um, uh, during our 40th anniversary year in 2017 called Commercial Break, to, to make sure that there's an aspect of the exhibition in, in all of the five boroughs. And the second summer show that's just been announced, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is a um, an exhibition of the artist B. Wirtz, who I have to say has been like one of my all-time favorite kind of most underrated artists. You know, we'll get to the even eight, I know. Um, but I think he's just such an interesting figure. He's been working really kind of dutifully along for about 50 years now and has really inspired a lot of younger um, sculptors. And... Typically, his work is very ephemeral. It's sort of small scale and kind of found, uh, fr- made from found objects, always whimsical, very sort of orderly and balanced. Um, but he had never been invited to do anything large scale, let alone anything durable. And when I started my conversation with him, actually, it was oh, just over a year ago about developing a project. You know, I saw, I, I said to him, I see that your work is always has a monumental quality to it, even if some of the tallest sculptures are only a few feet tall. And he was really kind of happy to think through and work through the process of developing something for public space. So we're going to be doing an exhibition at City Hall Park in August of this year, where he 
he is developing these really, really special, large sort of tree-like sculptures that are made from found objects, especially sort of kitchen objects. So the title of the exhibition is Kitchen Trees. And they're going to be sort of trunks that are made from stacked colanders, pots and pans, and all of these kind of cheap, like, plastic fruits that you find, uh, you know, uh, usually for kids. Um, and there's really going to be a vibrancy. There's really going to be a very kind of whimsical um, nature to it. You know, the sort of Dr. Seuss reference has been um, really kind of bandied around uh, the office when we're talking about this exhibition. Well, now, since you are so prepared, let's go I don't ahead know about that. <laughs> and start the Even Eight. What is the most underrated show in New York right now? You know, I thought a lot about this one, and... It's actually really interesting because um, I've actually bumped into Rebecca at what is certainly not the most underrated show because I think uh, the Robert Gober show at Matthew Marks right now, everyone knows this is one of the most important gallery exhibitions on view right now. But so my answer is the second venue of <laughs> of the Robert Gober show that people might not realize is actually on. Mm-hmm. So everyone really knows about the piece that's on view at Matthew Marx's gallery, but there's a secondary space on 20th Street that's this very interesting kind of weird out-of-the-way space. There's like a kind of almost a suburban screen door that you go into to get to this, and there are two pieces on view there that are so powerful, so compelling, that I really hi- highly recommend people go to it. But, you know, I just sort of, I also wanted to kind of expand my answer because I spent a day going to see that and then wandered to one of my favorite gems nearby, which is actually the Rubin Museum. Mm. And I think there's a lot of sort of small scale museums throughout New York City that are kind of on people's radars, kind of not on people's radars. Yeah. And so something like the Rubin and then also the the museum where I used to work uptown, the Jewish Museum is certainly, you know, in, in that regard. I think they've been doing wonderful work there recently. And then, you know, another one that is sort of maybe to take a totally different tact here, but is something that I think is such a special institution to have here in New York City that's like completely underrated. I don't even think most New Yorkers know it, know that it exists here. Is, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> is, is the um, National Museum of the American Indian, which is downtown near Bowling Green at the Customs Building. Yeah, I'm getting a look from you. I knew one like, of us was going like, to be surprised. I, I can feel it. I, I don't think I knew this museum existed. Yeah, and it's part of the Smithsonian, actually. So I've been spending a lot of time in D.C., like checking out all of their, you know, their museums down there. And there's a great um, museum of, of the Native American down there that's a newer institution, but here, just actually just go to this museum to see the building. It's a fascinating building right at the Bowling Green stop. How uh, old is it? Well, so the building itself used to be the Customs House, okay, which okay. I don't know exactly when it was constructed, but it has a bit ironic. these... Im- yeah. Oh, <laughs> painfully. Um, but it has these amazing Reginald Marsh... Um, murals actually in its central rotunda that are from 37 that are like really special Mm. as well and just the objects that are on view there you know in terms of Native American history these really really special objects that I really think are important to look at especially at this moment where we're thinking about our own you know indigenous peoples and the very complicated past with them I'm getting a look from you like wow that that was the last thing it was the last thing I was expecting I mean the Rubin yes absolutely everybody should go but apparently we've been missing it and for something as ironic as a customs house for that venue with what sounds like WPA moments murals is kind of incredible so if that is something we should absolutely see can you tell us a little bit about what you think is the most overrated show happening in New York and we recognize this is the trick question yeah so you know 
uh, what do they say? First time caller, long time listener. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been following this podcast uh, and I've loved and And I, not only that, I should take this just as an opportunity to say <laughs> that I, I've been such a fan of Even and I think you guys are doing such important stuff, you know, with the podcast, with the publication. I've been, like I said, I've been listening to the podcast since the first episode, been reading the magazine since the first issue. So I think with that kind of like, you know, rah, 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 unpaid, uh, you <laughs> Thank know, Thank you for the wonderful endorsement. Everyone should subscribe. We didn't bribe subscribe. him to come yeah, on Yeah, I was going to say, this was not promise. a bribe. Subscribe to both. Um, and we don't pick favorites, but... <laughs> well, certainly right now, Dan is. <laughs> <laughs> so with all of that, I really just hope that you'll grant me a little <laughs> leniency with this question because I know everyone usually says, oh, you know, I'm not going to say anything. I don't think there's such a thing as overrated. Like, and I, maybe it was only my dear, dear friend, Emma, who actually like kind of threw somebody under the bus there. Um, that I but wanna... like no one got hurt. Let's be honest. <laughs> like, uh, I don't that's know. What Let's I... see. Is there any blowback? Uh, not, a, not, not as much as you think. Um, not on my watch. <laughs> good. Good. All I want to say here is I hope you'll grant me a little bit of leniency to expand this question a tiny bit, to not just talk about a specific show or a cultural event, but I want to sort of take it to to culture that's maybe a little overrated more okay. generally or aspects of our culture. And I don't know. It's, an, it's just an opportunity to sort of talk about that I've been really working and thinking long and hard about my relationship to my cell phone, to my smartphone, and to technology more generally. Mm -hmm. And I think I will say that I think technology and social media and smartphones and things like that are a bit overrated. I'm not a Luddite. I don't think, you know, I haven't ditched my smartphone for a flip phone, but I think we need to have- I'm almost there. Good for you, if you can do it, yeah. I definitely can't. Um, <laughs> yeah, you'll be lost, you'll always be 15 minutes late for everything and you know, missing Completely. all those important um, Never checking and, my email. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I've really been working to kind of get a more sort of mindful approach and grasp on, on these types of things. And I think it's actually, you know, I've been really working to do that for a little while now and I think it's done me really good. I notice my opportunity for abstract thought, you know, to yeah. sort of come back into my life. I don't feel as distracted and kind of constantly like trying to grab up my phone. I've also cut out processed sugar. So I feel like maybe that's a sort of like <laughs> secondary thing that's really been having a positive effect as well. So, so putting your phone down yeah, a little bit. I, yeah. I mean, I just think that it's overrated to think that like it needs to control your life, you know, that yeah. you need to always have it there. And also, you know, especially for all the great art that is on in the world right now. I was right also going to say, like, it does affect your art, the art going, museum going, art seeing public yeah. and how people experience. Totally. That. I mean, I've, and I've been thinking about that for a long time now, you know, it's like you should be experiencing the work and then you also should be sharing and telling your friends about it, you know, posting it on social media, all of that good stuff, but do it after, you know, like it doesn't need to happen during, you know, make sure you're experiencing that um, oftentimes temporary, you yeah. know, temporary exhibition or, you know, limited thing and go to publicartfund.org to check out the, you know, the work that we have on, you know, at public art fund, you know, in terms of social media handle, all that good, good stuff, plug. but let's do it after, you know, and let's do it in a way that's, <laughs> I was um, like, that was smooth. <laughs> no, let's do it in a way that's, that allows like the, the, yeah, the experience. Yeah. yeah. Absorption. Um, what do you think is the most exciting recent development in New York City's cultural landscape? Well, maybe it's kind of an an obvious one, but for me, um, I really think it's about 
it's about the developments and the, the shifts that have gone on in urban public space. Mm. I really think that, you know, I don't remember exactly which year it was, but for the first time, growth in cities outpaced growth growth in the suburbs, you know, since basically the mid-century. Mm-hmm. And I think cities are so incredibly vibrant at this point right now. There's so much going on in all of the various arts institutions in terms of, uh, you know, uh, just people thriving in, in this city. Although I will say there's a kind of a challenge here when it comes to um, thinking about gentrification and who can actually live here. Are artists being sort of pushed out, squeezed out? You know, are we kind of having a, a tricky time with that? But I do think that public space and especially, you know, with some of the great sort of, you know, great advocates for public space in recent years. I mean, I, I really have been fascinated by Jeanette Shadi Khan and the work that she did in the city, you know, as a DOT commissioner, I believe was her position, that public space is just so thriving and we have a return sort of awareness of our of our parks systems of our waterfront you know there's just such uh, in terms of like also i love biking around new york city and i think it's just really great that we can actually do this now and slightly more safely yeah (laughs) safer way so i think that you know i'm really lucky to be working right now in public space Mm -hmm. and and to help artists sort of think through the process of creating interventions into that public space that that are part of the thriving you know democratic city that we live in right now what's the most important book you've read or film you've watched recently and keep in mind that important is sort of a stand-in word for anything that's had a big impact yeah um, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I didn't go back and yeah. reread, you know, Ulysses or something. Yeah. Oh, okay. We went in two different <laughs> related directions. There. Um, uh, so Maybe we should add like, what was the last movie that made you cry? Sorry. I just oh, just... every single movie I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Like any movie that like tugs at my heartstrings, I'm like, I'm bawling. So I, it's like, <laughs> I feel like I'm such a, I feel like I'm being kind of silly about these types of things, but uh, in terms of being smarter about my my cell phone use and smarter about, you know, my diet and this type of stuff, I also a bunch of years ago decided that I wanted to take on monthly biographical research topics. So every month you're looking at me like, oh God, Dan, yeah. Maybe I should maybe I shouldn't have said this. So every month No, I'm excited. I like where this is going. Every month I take on a new cultural or historical subject. figure, so, yeah, subject. Um, and if it's like, if it's a someone who has a new biography about them, I usually read that biography. Or if there's an autobiography that they wrote or something like that. If it's a, you know, a director, a cinema director, I wa- try to watch all of their films. Or you know, who is and, this month? So and did this start with Hamilton? Be honest. Well, also, no, what's what's the decision? Can you quickly just explain the like decision process? Like how did how you know? I'll tell you what. Or like what prompted it? I guess that's really it, yeah. It's, all that it's what prompted it is yeah. actually really fun. It started with Prince. Okay, I see. Yeah, that was not necessarily where you where you thought it would be uh, coming from, but no, it was that Prince died, and I was like, "This guy's really fascinating." You're like, "This and sucks." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and I had not really listened to much of his music, mm. and it was kind of this thing where I just realized, like, "Oh, okay, my parents, you know, liked Prince, but they just didn't raise me on Prince's music the way they raised me on other um, people's music or something like that." And so I went back and I just started listening to everything and reading everything I could about him. And now I feel like, okay, I kind of get who this is. And so it started from a pretty, I don't want to say superficial place, but it just sort of like, okay, I need to educate myself about a 
cultural blind well, like, spot. And like what was happening in real time. Like that makes sense. Completely. That. And then and then I think I've really kind of run with it and been looking at my own blind spots and trying to, you know, yeah, get further get get up on these things. So actually something a development that I think is really important, um, that I was encouraged to do and I've really been loving it, is this year it's been only female subjects, which has actually been really nice. Um how and long has this Oh, since so Prince. since I mean it's about a year <laughs> like, and a half, on. almost almost two years now, maybe okay. I guess it is. And um, and so recently the the book, you know, or to book and maybe you know music to go back to uh, this question is um, I just read the David Yaffe Joni Mitchell biography. I've heard it's great. Uh, I have some issues with it. Oh, really? Because um, I know. read some and they're like, I love this. But, and I was like, I'm sure it's fun. But <laughs> what was so important about it, you know, to sort of use that um, that prompt in a sort of expanded way was like, I grew up listening to Court and Spark and Blue, but nothing else of Joni Mitchell's work. And I didn't really know the complexity of her career. And I think especially in this moment where we're frankly finally talking about gender imbalances um, when it comes to the art world and more generally across culture it's like these stories um, are really important to to go back to and to think a lot more about so when we ask you if you could be an expert on any subject what would it be it's actually that you'd like to be an expert on all subjects (laughs) all (laughs) major figures I'm like I'm a truth seeker I always want to learn more I think um yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if I had to drill down and just pick one or one sort of small field, I guess I would say it's probably like the nature. I, I, w- I would love to be more of a naturalist. And partly that's like environmental science and partly that's zoology and, and these botany. types of, and botany and all of these things. I just think that, uh, yeah, I, I grew up like, you know, kind of in a sort of more natural setting. Um, I grew up in, you know, Western Connecticut and kind of just being here in the city right now uh, for it's over 10 years that I've been living in New York has really, I think, made me kind of want to dig into that subject a bit more. So over your past 10 years, what has become your favorite place to be alone in New York? I mean, actually, it's funny. It's a kind of related answer. It is nature. The library. Oh. No, it, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. And and so in terms of how I would like to become an expert and simultaneously be alone uh, in this in this new uh, subject, this new field of, in, of in my research, it's in nature. There's some really kind of fascinating places around New York City where you can kind of get alone. And whether it's, you know, one of my favorite spots in Wood Hill Park, which is like this remnant of an you know, prior uh, prior moment in in New York City's history, and it's yeah, coincidentally actually also it's Native American history. That's a really important site for that, where Peter Minuet and the Lenape um, trade went down. In, you know, in in terms of that, like highlights and genocide moment. I say that like in you know with total disdain for what has happened. That that's an important site where you can actually sort of hike and wander and and also get really close to New York City's waterfront, which is the other. Mm-hmm. sort of answer of how, where I go to be alone uh, you can a lot of times find me like on a Saturday morning just sort of sitting on the ro- the rocks um, down by the, the waterfront reading a book so, yeah. where do you take someone you're trying to impress um, you know I, like, like I said I grew up in Connecticut um, but my childhood museum was the Metropolitan 
Metropolitan Museum of mm. Art. And so my parents would bring me down here. They were not at all in the arts, but they, I think, just understood that it was something that would enrich my life and that I really could kind of wander around and find myself in. So I actually, I went on, I believe it was a fourth date with my partner um, to the Met and I took her through all of my childhood favorites, which are not the typical highlights of the museum, right. not the famous works, but are the kind of weird, you know, back, yeah, the weird back rooms and the things that are all really personal. And um, I don't know, she thought I was a nerd, but I guess it was, I guess <laughs> it, it was endearing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's on your radar for the rest of 2018? Um, well, of course, you know, the public art fund shows that we yeah. have coming Hot dog buses and kitchen exactly. trees. Yes, exactly. And, you know, a lot of other great things that are coming up further further afield um, or further, you know, further down the calendar line in 2018. But before that, I'm really excited to travel to Berlin in June for the Berlin Biennale. That's going to be great. And then later, the Carnegie International, I think, is going to be really strong this year. And then also there's, I just heard actually, because we were talking about Matthew Marks before. Yeah, I just heard that there's a um, Charlie Ray show coming up, which I'm so excited for. I think he's absolutely incredible. And then to kind of like just sort of drop this at the end there in terms of further afield later in 2018, I'm really excited for the Kampala Art Biennale as well. Will you be traveling to Kampala for this? <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about it. It'll be good. They have a really interesting um, new kind of concept for a Biennale with some of the most important artists in Africa sort of integrating into the community there and setting up their studio for that time. So it should be good. I'm. It'll be an adventure. Yeah, I'm going to sort of take it as an opportunity to to travel to a yeah. part of the world that I never thought I would go to before. And in direct contrast to hot dogs on the Brooklyn waterfront. Well, we got to do it all. Yeah, exactly. A little <laughs> bit of everything. <laughs> really rounding out your year. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. And we encourage everyone to make sure that they go on Public Art Fund's website, preferably not as they're standing in front of one of the major sculptures, and instead <laughs> figure out where and how they can see the next big project that Dan makes possible. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And just like that, we've wrapped up our entire first season of Hidden Noise. Big thank you to Jaja Fay and Dan Palmer for joining us today and making this a very special season finale. We hope you all have an amazing summer. I'm Rebecca Siegel. And I'm Abby Sandler. And this is Hidden Noise. <laughs>